Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are in uh, Matthew 8. Today we're going to be in verses 5 through 13. I, I think, I hope, I can get it all done today. Um, so we've just finished. Remember, Jesus has just done the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and then as he came down the mountain, he, he runs into the leper, heals the leper. That was yesterday. So today, he's continuing, and he goes home. <laughs> he went to Capernaum. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. So what's a centurion? It's a Roman soldier over uh, uh, a group of up to 100 men. It's odd. You would think centurion, which means century, all that, would mean 100, but it doesn't necessarily mean 100, frankly. Sometimes it's as few as 80 people that a centurion was over, but at any rate. <clears throat> so it's a Roman soldier. Uh, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he, Jesus, said to him, I'll come and heal him. So Jesus immediately, I mean, this guy recognized what Jesus had already done, apparently knew some things, heard some things in the area. Because remember, before we got to the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus was healing people in this area. He's speaking in the synagogues and healing anybody they brought to him. So here, a centurion comes, who is not a Jew, and he comes and he just makes Jesus aware that his servant is paralyzed at home, suffering terribly, and Jesus immediately says, I'll come and heal him. So, message received. And he said to him, the, uh, but the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, there, there could have been two things that happened here. Jesus is coming to this centurion's household. He's going to go into the Roman soldier's place and heal this servant, which is certainly not what normally Jewish people would have done in that time. They, they considered that to be unclean and that they would be at some level defiled by contact with these non-Jews. And so Jesus saying, I will come and heal him, is already a departure from what normally would have taken place here. But the centurion says, and this is remarkable humility from a Roman soldier, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I mean, it, that, that is so backwards. I mean, if we think about the, uh, the attitude Jews had towards the Samaritans, for instance, where it says they wouldn't even share uh, eating and drinking vessels with them. So Jesus breaks through that barrier. Here, he, he, is, a, he is offered to break through a barrier that usually Jews put up in front of Romans because they're pagans. So he's offered to break through that, but the centurion's response is to say, Lord, I'm not worthy for that. He recognizes him first as Lord, and then goes from there to saying, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And, and one thing that would be atypical, certainly, would be for a Roman soldier to show this kind of humility before a subjugated people. And so for him to say, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, is the recognition of who Jesus is. I mean, he, this guy's making some extraordinary statements. First, he believes this Jew can heal his servant. Second, he calls him Lord. Third, he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
He is making extraordinary statements of faith here in who he believes Jesus to be. And, and he's not making direct statements, but these are nonetheless incredibly powerful statements for a Roman centurion to tell a Jewish subject that he wasn't worthy for, that, for you to come under his roof would be astounding. Because normally their attitude towards the subjugated people would have been more or less like, no, I'm not going to allow you in my house. You know, it, they looked at them just as subjects. They were they were um, certainly not respected in that way. I mean, whose whose culture had conquered and dominated theirs, and so there was a great pride in being a Roman, particularly in being Roman citizen, but even more so in being a Roman centurion. But this guy is like the synagogue ruler we see in a later story, in that he's desperate. And he, but he believes so much about Jesus. Like I said, he, he comes to Jesus and poses this problem in a similar way that Mary does when she says, hey, they're running out of wine at the wedding at Cana in Galilee in John 2. And, but here, this guy, he just comes and matter-of-factly tells Jesus what the situation is, and Jesus immediately knows that he's not just giving him information, that he wants something. And so, so he agrees to do it, and then this guy makes, like I said, so he's already made one statement of faith in telling Jesus this, because he didn't just tell random people, he told Jesus. Then he refers to him as Lord. Then he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Wow. I mean, he, he believes that Jesus has the power just to speak that. He doesn't have to see him. He doesn't have to touch him. He doesn't have to do anything. I believe that you have the power to do this. Now, is the servant any part of this? It speaks highly of the soldier that he's here on behalf of his servant, that he cares about his servant to the extent that he wants to see him healed, and he goes and does this. We don't know if the servant's a, a Jewish person or not. We assume probably might have been, uh, that he'd been pressed into service here, but, but he's asking Jesus to heal him. So he cares, obviously, about this servant enough to come to Jesus. And, and he's not concerned about the faith of the servant in any shape, form, or fashion. He just says, you have the power to heal him, irrespective of any of that. Now, he's making an extraordinary statement of faith on his own. And, and, but is it because of his faith that he receives this healing, or is it at least in part that, that Jesus sees this faith and does this thing but he, because of his faith, yes, it's possible. It's part of what he is because Jesus marvels at his faith. But Jesus didn't need that faith in order to heal. It didn't. It's not required. But but the statement of faith, I believe, is the the, the real thing. Is the statement of faith in just coming to Jesus, making his request known. That in itself was the greatest act of faith in all of this. The rest of it is just commentary in so many ways. But but he cares about his servant. He makes all these statements of faith, says, all you have to do is speak the word and my servant can be healed. All you got to do is say it right now. If you'll just say it, then, then we'll be good to go. He said, and then he explains why he thinks that. He says, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So, what he's saying is, is that I believe you have power over disease. I believe you have power over this paralysis. It's not the power over the servant that he has. It's power over the thing that Jesus is going to speak, which is the healing. 
into his life. And so this man has faith that Jesus has power over disease and that all he has to do is speak to it and he'll be healed. It's a remarkable statement of faith. I mean, other people we see have already come to Jesus to be healed. The leper comes and the leper makes a very similar kind of a plea to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. His statement of faith is right in line with this faith of the centurion. He believes that Jesus can make him clean, but but Jesus did more than that. He 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 made him clean and then restored him to the uh, to the community. And so this guy is equally convinced. So right now, what we've seen is that that James and John, Peter and Andrew, certainly made expressions of faith in in becoming disciples. And then then we see this leper make a statement of faith that Jesus can heal him if he wants. And now the, the centurion makes exactly the same kind of thing. And he said, I believe you have authority. I believe you have authority over diseases. I, I, I've seen it. And I believe that to be true. And Jesus heard it. He marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I'll tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus commends the faith of the centurion, who he now is telling us that no one in Israel has such fa- have I found such faith. And, and so what he's, he's doing is contrasting this Gentile, this pagan Roman centurion, who would definitely not have been anybody's favorite in, in most circumstances. The, the Jewish resentment toward the uh, occupying Romans was, was pretty great. They, they had to put up with them, and so publicly they would have been very polite about it, but privately no, there was always wars and rumors of wars and rebellions going on amongst the Jews. And, and, and this tenuous uh, peace as it were, is only going to last another 25 or 30 years after the death of Jesus. Um, and, and so there's always a resentment under the surface there over this occupying force. And, and so Jesus commends the, this guy, though, and says, nowhere among Israel, no one in Israel, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And that's one thing. But then what he says is, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so what he's saying is, a lot of Gentiles are going to come. A lot of Gentiles are going to come. And, and, and that would have been an expectation, absolutely an expectation, a messianic expectation by the Jews. They would fully have expected, yep, Gentiles are going to come in. They're going to see our greatness. They're going to see that, that while they may have conquered us militarily, it's only because God allowed it. And, and if they've triumphed culturally, which is what people accused the Galileans of doing is capitulating to culture, to Greco-Roman culture, then that we might be in captivity now, but ultimately our God will deliver us through this messianic king. You'll be conquered, you'll be subjugated, and, and you'll see the superiority of our God and our culture. And so Jesus, when he says that people will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, everybody there would have kind of shake their head and said, yep, mm-hmm, absolutely. And so it seems to be sort of messianic proof at that point that, that these, this Gentile has seen something, and Jesus is saying, you know, they're going to start coming in. So this would have raised messianic expectations. If he had stopped there, everything would have been fine. 
but he didn't. So he says, they'll, they'll come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, those are the Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what? That'd be like going into most churches and looking around and going, some of you are not actually going to get into heaven. You're not going to have eternal life with God. You'll have eternal life, but you'll be in outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That would literally be like going into every church in America and telling them that, saying that every single time that you go. That's your message, right? Right. There are people outside the church today who have greater faith than anybody in here does, and they'll inherit the kingdom, and some of you are not. I like that. I mean, that that's almost exactly what Jesus says. So everybody's tracking I mean, they're not pleased that he says, I haven't found anyone with the kind of faith this centurion has. Obviously, that's a shot. But then he he makes basic messianic statements about what's going to happen, that these people are going to come from the east and the west. And and like I said, if he stops there, then everything's fine. Nobody's really upset. They, They feel the dig from the lack of faith. But then he says some of the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And he says this again and again and again, but he says this right away. I mean, immediately after he calls the disciples, gets crowds to follow him, does these things, gives the Sermon on the Mount, he turns on them. And so we've got a leper with faith, we've got a centurion with faith, and we've got all these people following Jesus, but he's saying these guys' faith is greater than your faith. And some, some people are going to be thrown into that outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he says that to the crowds, and then he turns back to the centurion, and he says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I mean, it's an extraordinary um, encounter here. Now, in Luke's gospel, it's even more extraordinary. <laughs> and, and, the, and this is one of the places where there's a difference between the synoptic gospels. John doesn't tell this story, and neither does Mark. Um, but in Luke's gospel, Jesus never meets the centurion. The centurion sends people to Jesus and says, hey, there's a problem. And and they tell him what's going on at the centurion's house. Jesus begins to go that way. But on the way there, the man sends other emissaries to tell Jesus there's no reason to bother. Here, there's a, there, and Jesus marvels in the same way. But that detail is pretty significant. But he, So here, Jesus turns and says, go, let it be done for you as you believed, and, and the servant was healed at that very moment. I mean, Jesus had the power to do exactly what he, what he set out to do, and he had exactly the power the centurion believed that he had. Now, it would be a wonderful thing if we, if we could follow up with this and say, did this guy come to faith? Did he believe Jesus to be the Son of God? Where was he at the crucifixion? All those kinds of things. But he's up in Capernaum, so he's probably not there at the crucifixion, but, I, but wouldn't you love to know what happened to that guy? Did he come to faith? Did he come to believe that Jesus was not just the Jewish Messiah, but the Messiah for all? It would be a fascinating thing to know that, but Matthew doesn't give us that information. But, but here again, like I said, what we get is a, a statements of, of extraordinary faith that this man has in Jesus. And my question would be, do you have that faith or, or has, you know, sort of life kick some of that faith out of you? Have you been burned by hoping and believing and all that and things not coming to pass in the time that you thought they would? And, and so have, have you still got that faith that Jesus can do all things? Do we have the faith of the centurion? We should. 
because he's the same Jesus. He is no less effective, no less powerful now than he was then. In fact, he's more so. And so we need to have the faith of this centurion. We, that, that's what Jesus says is going to get you where you need to be, that faith. Um, and so it's not just believing Jesus died on the cross and all that, but does Jesus have the power to do things in the world today? Does, is he still living and active in the world today? Do miracles still happen that are worked through him? I think we need to ask ourselves that question, and we need to begin to be more expectant and hopeful, and we need to pray with, with expectant hopefulness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.